Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full crew here in the studio. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Morning, everybody. Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hello, everybody. We've got some great topics today. And as always, if you're interested in sharing or have a question, you can send it to us at bci.ksu.edu. We also have a more in-depth podcast if you want to hear more about specific topics called Bovine Science with BCI. But today we're going to talk about bringing in bred heifers because I know some folks are looking at those bred heifer sales wanting to buy some heifers. What are the implications of that from a health nutrition standpoint? Dustin's got some econ questions for us. And then we're going to talk about pest control. I know everybody's excited about that topic and sharing their thoughts. Bob has been talking about pests all morning, so can't wait to hear your thoughts on that, Bob. Before we get into those, we are coming up on travel season. Go visit the relatives over the hill, through the dale. You're going to travel with the family in the car. I want to know, though, what is your favorite in-car activity from when you were a kid? So you're in the station wagon. There's no phone. You're traveling eight hours with your family. What is it that you would do to keep occupied in the car? Uh, this uh, this is actually bringing back maybe not all positive memories, but we were the classic, you know, the, the station wagon with the fake wood paneling on the side, three rows of seats, five kids, two parents. No seatbelts. Oh, no, no seatbelts. <laughs> they and, didn't have seatbelts you know, built into the vehicle back then. You know, cross. I'm surprised it wasn't just a horse and carriage. Yeah, well, we, we, had, we, didn't, we ditched the horse and carriage. For the long trips, we used the, uh, the, the station wagon. But, oh, yeah, the, you're crossing my line. And, and who? Actually, I kind of liked sitting in the back because there were no sisters in the back. So that's maybe, maybe so my favorite memory. what was your activity? The acti- well, sitting my, by yourself? Yeah, no, my mother did work at this. She made little bags with uh, coloring books and puzzle books and things like that, and she would pass those out if we would. If we had to be quiet for like 20 minutes. It seemed like forever, and yeah. then she would pass them out. So she was using some psychology and maybe some, you know, child abuse. I'm not sure what. <laughs> Philip, I was trying to think. I mean, I definitely remember. Hey, this is my line. This is my side. You don't, don't. You can't even. Not that you're touching me. You can't even stick your hand across the line. Those kind of those three boys in the back seat of a sedan. But I don't remember what games we used to play. I mean, some of the things we do now are license plate game and oh yeah, and there's uh, it's like tra- what is it travel bingo or something? Yeah, yeah. you have to you have a card deck and you have to find something that matches that card deck. Or maybe that's not travel bingo. Maybe that's a different one. I can't remember, but. Those kind of things. Those kind of things. Do, keep yeah. Try to keep occupied. Brian? So we did the states and plates, and then we did the alphabet game, right? You have to come up. Um, you have to see us uh, find a letter of A through Z on every sign as you go by. And Al's you, who, oh, you never played the – I thought you meant the alphabet game. Like, did you play the alphabet trucker game? Like, Al's hauling aluminum to Alabama? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, I never, never that's played a that classic, one. man. No. Dustin, I hope I didn't steal yours. Nope. Uh, I mean, we – Pretty much, we would do a lot of road trips, and we had the van, the full-size Ford, what was it called, conversion van, economy yeah. van, whatever, yeah. where the whole back would lay down to a bed so we could sleep. But uh, we did, you know, the license plate stuff. We did a lot of states and capitals, like, you know, mm-hmm. mom would yell out state, and then we'd have to name the capital or vice versa. So we did a lot of that kind of stuff, but we were always doing something, it seemed like. Yeah, one, yeah, one I thought, I just thought of, I spy. 
Yep. Oh yeah. yeah. See, there's all those all those fun car games. Hopefully, this gives you some yeah, motivation let's for your trip. This load up and season. head out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or you could come travel with these guys because they sound fun to travel with. So, although Dustin's going to be laying down in the back sleeping, so let's let's talk uh, heifers. So, at, at this time of year, spring calving herds may be looking to bring in some bred heifers. I know there's some bred heifer sales now. Some coming up after the first of the year. And what I wanted to ask you guys is, if I'm thinking about going out purchasing bred heifers to bring into my herd to calve with the cows. Obviously, I'm going to try to find high-quality heifers that match my herd and match my calving season. But are there health, economic, nutritional impacts? What should I be thinking about when I get those heifers home? Bob, I'll start with you. Uh, To me, honestly, one of the most important things is when are they going to calve? Because I really need those heifers to calve before my herd starts calving or at least in the first couple of weeks of my cow herd calving. And so even if I thought it was a really good group of heifers, if they calve kind of late compared to my cows, they won't fit in my herd long-term. And it's really important that they fit. And fit is also the date, not just the size and milking ability. It's also the date. Because we're we're finding them early enough that they should calve early because they're going to have a longer postpartum interval which means it's going to take them longer to breed back. And this is my opportunity to really get them set up to calve early. So, Brian, if I'm buying these heifers and let's say they're five, six months of gestation, should I bring them home? He said I've got to be sure they fit. Should I bring them home and repreg check them or try to find out? Can I get that date to be sure that they're calving before my cows? Well, I think I think what you need to do is just you need to be honest about how much do you trust the information you're getting? And it's probably all over the spectrum, right? You may you may get information that said these are spring calving heifers. And it could spring means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, you may be purchasing from a source where they've already preg checked them and maybe they have a date and then you've got to decide, you know, was that was that the somebody that's not trained to preg check giving you gate date estimations? Was that somebody that is trained, was it an ultrasound? You know, how, how did they determine that date? Was it off of an AI date? Was it a bull bread date? I mean, all of those things matter, right? But we're kind of in the stage of gestation where if you've got a five to six month pregnancy, I can tell you if it's kind of close, but I'm not going to be able to get you down to probably the day or the week, right? You're going to say it probably just like you did. It's a yeah. five to six month pregnancy and it could be either of those, whereas Bob's saying it's pretty important. So where you get those dates, your information previously matters and mm-hmm. is important. Yep. So Philip, I want to ask you a lot of times in, in our scenario, we're going to the bread heifer sale. Heifers going to sale often have really good body condition. So they're coming in, they may be a body score six, they may be a little bit fleshy, what do I need to do with her when I get her home? Because we're still four or five months from calving. Well, we, she might be kind of fleshy. I mean, we want her probably about a six or to when she calves because we know that she's going to have a longer postpartum interval. And if she's in better body condition score, that'll help shorten that as much as we can. Um, but we also got to remember that she's going to continue to grow. I mean, she's not mature yet, so she's going to continue to grow. Um, and so... She's going to be gaining weight with the fetus uh, and conceptus that is that is increasing in size in the last trimester, but she also needs to be gaining weight of on of herself, probably about half a pound a day or so. 
And so we need to make sure that we are feeding her maybe a little bit different than the rest of our cow herd. If she is like a body condition score seven, a little bit over fleshy, then um, we can let her lose a little bit and and not have to push her as as much. But we don't want to let her get th- let her get thin and not as thin as the cows. Absolutely, because she's a she's a different animal mm-hmm. than the cow. She's at a different part of her growth stage. One of the other things I wanted to ask you guys about is what, what about from a health standpoint? I'm bringing in heifers that have not been in my herd, bringing them in. Can I just throw them in with the cows? Do I need to do something different? What about vaccines? Is there any tests that they need to have before they arrive? Well, I'll go back to some of the things that, that Brian was saying is it, I get some information from the seller. And is that a lot of information or a little bit? Because I do want the heifers to be well vaccinated, particularly against the diseases that can cause abortion. So IBR virus, BVD virus, leptovibrio, those types of things. I want them well vaccinated coming into my herd. And a lot of times when I'm buying pregnant heifers, it's from people that develop heifers as part of their business. And they do a good job of making sure they're vaccinated. But I'd kind of want some confirmation of that. And I, I may do a one more round of vaccines as they approach calving the first time. Uh, and make it really align with my cow herd. Um, and well, the other thing is make sure that my cow herd is is up to date on the vaccines. And again, I'll, they, they should be. Um, but make sure that, that we've kind of taken care of that risk. I think even before we get to vaccines, though, you know, we've talked about biosecurity a lot on the podcast. And I, I think it's just like bringing in any other animal, right? There, You need to have some sort of biosecurity plan for any new addition. And even like Bob said, even if this is coming from a reputable heifer developer, there may be things that they don't know about that your herd is naive to that you should be concerned about. And, and I don't no real specific disease example I'm thinking of Brad, just in general. So I, I think, uh, a quarantine period where you bring them in, you, they need to be isolated. And, you know, we've talked about different ways to isolate, but that means essentially no nose to nose contact and then let them sit for a period of time. A couple of weeks probably is the minimum. Um, if you can do more, great. Um, but then as far as specific, you asked about testing. I don't know that there's really any specific testing. I mean, you, you could, there are hundreds of diseases we can test for. I, I don't know in this situation that there's one necessarily that I would feel like that's the one I have to test for. So a lot of, a lot of times that two week period that you've got that quarantine, no nose to nose contact, we're looking for anything that they might have picked up recently. That's active disease. I'm looking for illness. It's not just, I put them in a pen, but I'm actually monitoring them to see, do they get sick in that period? Because some of these, if we do a private treaty sale, they went from one farm to another, but if we do a larger replacement heifer sale, and they may have even come from multiple sources in the group that I purchased. Well, we're putting them together. We're seeing how everything fits and if they get sick. Yeah. And the other thing, too, though, that, you know, we think of it as a quarantine period to protect our herd. But the other thing is, is that's a nice period to introduce them to all the new things on your operation, right? The water might be different. The feed might be different. So, yeah, you don't just put them in a pen and ignore them. You need to, you need to get them acclimated to your location, but you're also monitoring them for diseases. Well, that's a good opportunity to work with your veterinarian to come up with what is my arrival plan. Because there are a couple, and you mentioned there's a lot of stuff we could test for, whether or not they're a concern to your operation or in your area. 
will be up to you and your veterinarian to decide because there may be some that you want to do. Dustin, you've got some questions for us today. I know that you took yours from the National Animal Health Monitoring System from the cow-calf survey. What part are we ciphering through today? Well, so a couple weeks back, a few weeks back, I was driving across north-central Kansas, watch high school football, JV football game, and I noticed there was a lot of a lot of pasture, but in those pastures there was a lot of ponds, and, and more of them were gone they were dried up. ponds without water ponds yeah. without water or there was you know ponds with very very little water and so i thought to myself i was just really interested in the whole water topic and so i went to the noms report that you mentioned and there's actually asked a few questions related to water so we're going to talk about water sources uh, and so in their survey they asked about uh source of cattle drinking water and so i'm going to list you the sources that they've asked about and then just tell me what percent of operations what's use mm. that source okay or we'll just pick the top three okay so of these we'll say one two three seven sources we're going to do rank one two three so you got a deep well so 100 feet or more or a shallow well 100 feet or less municipality source a pond a stream, pond or stream, so we're going to exclude that one, or a cistern. Those are your sources. So, which mm-hmm. one of those is the most most operation? What percent, highest percentage of operations that use those across all uh, herd sizes? So small, medium, and large. All right. Well, I would say like a pond or stream would be number one, and a deep well would be number two. And then the cistern, it kind of depends on, there's different geographies in the way people talk about that. A lot of times that'll be what I would call a pond. It's just, it doesn't have a stream coming into it. It's just a catchment of a area. And so some people might call that a tank. Some people might call that a cistern. I'm not sure it's, of the it's language. A tank. It's a tank or a receptacle for holding water. All right. It's typically used for collecting rainwater is how they've defined it. All right. Well, I'm going to say that's number three. Deep and shallow wells were two separate Two categories. separate ones. And pond I'll and stream go. were two separate ones as well. Oh, oh I'll, really? I'll go pond and the two wells. Yeah. I, think, I mean, surface water is yeah. probably the number one. You, I don't know, different parts of the country, it may be a stream, and then other parts it may be a pond. But that's probably number one. And then deep well and shallow well, I don't know how to rank those. I think. I'm not sure which one would be two or three. I might go with the pond, deep well, and then the cistern, as you defined it. So number one was pond at 74% of all operations. Stream was number two at 50%. Mm-hmm. Deep well was number three at 40%. The next one at 23% was the city. Yeah. Uh, and then a shallow well at 20 And the cistern was at 5%. Hmm. Yeah, I... I wonder if sometimes there's a language issue there because I think in ge- different geographics they kind of use different words for that catchment. Yeah, because you said, I mean, when I picture a cistern, I picture a Made concrete, like concrete hole yeah. that rainwater funnels into. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't necessarily picture that. See, I, that, I, I think would, there's different would, people think different things yeah. when they hear those Just words. Up, that's what we had. We had it, uh-huh. it yeah. off the roof and it go down and then we had a little hand. See, I was thinking like a tank, like the difference between, as you described, a pond and a cistern. I would say basically a cistern is a pond that doesn't have that stream or something flowing into it. But but obviously that's not right if only 5% of people. All right, and the places I've been, people call that a stock tank. Or a tank, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and then the municipal, because the other thing is, you know, kind of rural water districts, those types of things, that might have fallen under the municipal. And, and, you know, when I've been out and about this year and actually last year, too, I've talked to several guys who, you know, joined their their, uh, rural water district but never really used that because it's a more expensive source but they have in the last year or two and they're yep. really glad that you've they got that backup that. Yep. Yep. they've made that as a backup plan so just thinking about from a region west versus central versus east united states eastern united states pond was the number one in all three of them by far uh the deep well was number two in both west and central but in the east actually it's a stream mm-hmm. uh, that kind of yeah, makes, makes sense, sense. and yeah. then a deep well actually is number three Okay, uh, and then the streams are number three for the west and central part. So a little bit of a geography difference, uh, at least for the second and third highest used. So that was my uh, water question. Oh, I got one more water question for you. Uh, so percentage of operations that use a trough or other separate container as a source for uh, cattle drinking water, seventy-two percent. I'm just going to tell you that. So seventy-two percent of operations use a trough or a separate. So my question now is, how often do they clean that? Tank? Oh. <laughs> so here's here's your here's your choices. Less than three. Uh, how many weeks between each cleaning? Okay. Okay. Less than three weeks. Three to seven. Eight to fourteen. Fifteen to twenty-nine. Thirty or more, or not. Routinely cleaned. Not routinely. I, I will go with not. Probably right yeah, number 30, thirty or more. I wouldn't put not routinely. I'd just say thirty or more weeks. Uh, number one was not routinely cleaned. It's at See, people were honest. Six <laughs> percent. That's honest. That's thirty or more weeks. That is the true. What the second highest one was? What? Wait, you said twenty-six percent were not routinely cleaned. Twenty-six percent were not routinely cleaned. Okay. Well, that's 20, lower than I thought. Twenty-two percent chose three between three and seven weeks. Yeah. Really? So, I, yeah, it makes sense, right? People either do it or they don't. Or they don't. And there's not really any yeah, – that actually makes sense. I, I think, think that's actually a pretty important, yeah. especially as you go through and seasonally in the summer, if you've got those tanks, there are a lot more mildewy, algae stuff mm-hmm. build up. You depends go through the, the winter, you can have longer stretches yeah. where it stays clean. Well, it depends on, too, if it's an open tank or if it's a ball tank. And ball tanks don't grow as algae and stuff as fast and as much as an open water tank. All right. So my next last set of questions is going to deal with rodents, mm-hmm. rodent control. And so specifically in reading the discussion here in the report, it looks like they're really talking about rat and mice, rats and mice, because they talk about rats and mice can transmit disease to cattle, uh, can also consume contaminate feed such as grain. So we're talking about beef cow operations, which most of the time is spent on pasture. So rodent control isn't as important maybe as in feedlots or other enterprises. So the question is, we're talking about rodent control methods. And so the methods that they've provided the survey uh, respondents, here's the methods, chemicals or bait, chemicals, bait, traps, cats, other, and any, which is basically means anything. So we'll we'll exclude any for now. Uh, So what percent of operations by rodent control methods are used routinely during the previous 12 months? Hmm. So again, chemicals, baits, traps, cats, other. For cow, calf, I'm going to say cats. I think that would be pretty common, but I think, I also think the chemical baits, you know, bait stations are relatively common. So I'm going to go cats and bait stations more so than traps. Yeah, I would say bait stations probably up there number one or so because, I mean, they're easy. You just put them out, and you don't have to go clean the dead animal out of the trap. 
Yeah. Uh, so before I give you the answer, 66% use something. Something. Okay. 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 Uh, cats are number one at 49%. Wow. There you go. Philip's a dog guy. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and then the uh, chemicals baits are number two at 32, and traps are uh, well, third at at uh, 18%. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I think that's interesting. And, and a lot of folks have the kind of rodent pest control. And I, I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about that, thinking about what, what are some of the, we just heard good answers there from Dustin on what some of the options are. What do you guys see? What do you do? What's it, what's important when you're thinking about rodent or pest control? Well, one of the things that I, I've actually become quite impressed with the skill set of, um, people that, that do this professionally. So your, your pest management people, because lots of, maybe if you're just used to them coming around and spraying for bugs at your house, you don't realize that, you know, they work with, with uh, warehouses and feedlots and dairies, and they really do have some skills because each of these rodents, are, there's a little bit more to it than just setting out baits and stuff. And I, I teach a class or I taught a class where, uh, you know, some rats really like novelty, and so you move the traps around. Other rats other species of rats really hate novelty and so you have to pick a good spot and leave your trap alone and so those are the types of things that you know as a, i don't expect cow calf producers to know preferences of rats but i do expect my exterminator to know that kind of thing and so how do you know which rat you have well, whether you've got one that likes it novel or not but again the i don't you're supposed to know that part that's exactly right this i'm going to outsource this but i think it's a bigger deal than some people think in a cow calf operation because uh particularly around feed storage and other places like that where you know where little little calves calves could be and so one of the things that every exterminator that I've worked with says, you've got to clear out all the clutter because rats and other rodents like piles of wood. They like brush. They like those kinds of things. So bush hog the brush away from all buildings and, and feed storage. Keep piles of lumber away. You know, don't create them. And, and those types of kind of cleanliness and getting rid of the clutter. And then, you know, use of baits and different strategies. So I've you know, I'm, I want to take my hat off to the exterminators. They really can come in and help an operation reduce some of these risks. Well, and, and the, the other thing beyond just the clutter is the, you know, when I was in dairies, we always worried the bunks, right? The underside of the bunk is a great place. The feed comes to the rat. They can hang out. They got a place to hide. So it's, I think, I think Bob's right. They, they're, there's probably some professional advice that you can seek out that'd be really, really beneficial. And um, I know we're talking about rats, but you know, the other one it's similar as birds, right? So, um, we know that especially starlings can consume huge amounts of feed and the economic losses associated with a, is it flock, flock of starlings, I guess that, you know, come through can be enormous for operation, probably easily pay for an exterminator fee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Get the, get the professionals out there to kind of figure out what are some of the, what are some of the issues? Dustin, Philip, what are your thoughts on? vermin well my thoughts are i don't like it and that said you know we have an exterminator come to our house every month and not too long ago i showed him that we've got a bat that lives he comes we've named him bruno bruno is a it's a male bat he's been there for four summers does he like novelty or not like novelty he likes his he's got one spot he's every night or every day he's there and we've talked about maybe having the exterminator get rid of him but he said you know it's a male. He's not bothering you. 
one thing to keep in mind, he can eat up to 17,000 mosquitoes a night. And I thought, wow, you know, I might leave that. Might <laughs> let him stay. He can stay because <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's gone now because it's cold. But most of the generally, yeah, I don't like the vermin. Like to get rid of it, and I, I would have somebody who specializes in that and taking care of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've dealt with dealt with it with you know traps and baits and feed yards. I've worked at. We had cats. We had some pretty good mousers at some of those feed yards that that would. It was probably actually kind of fun to watch them. But I don't. I mean, I don't know that I have any specific advice for um, controlling vermin. Well, I, th- I think you guys have given some good input uh, relative to get the experts, if there's an expert in your area. Also, just some of the general keep away, and you put it well, Brian, keep away, easy access to feed and easy access to housing or nice places to live, right? And, and that helps with some of those. Same way with the birds relative to trees, roosting areas, or how close are those to the feed bunk and feed area. So thanks for, thanks for that discussion, and we appreciate you listening along with us. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.